Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. This show's format has been locked up for months, but my guest has picked those locks. He's Deviant Olaf, a physical penetration specialist who makes it look easy breaking into buildings, legally of course, and finding his way through gated communities, locked buildings, and supposedly impenetrable server rooms. For everything about Deviant, as well as the core group and Red Team Alliance, go to deviating.net and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and GitHub, all at Deviant Olaf. And Deve, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I'm, I'm, yeah, the name is quite the shibboleth. People just read it or don't know how to say it or they only hear it said, but then have to type it. You really have to kind of know me to find me. It's True. One of those unique things. The first question out of the, out of the gate has to be, how did you get into this line of work? You clearly were not starting this way as a, as a teenager or young adult. So how did you make that, that switch into yeah. the world of locks and entries and keys and all of that stuff? So the tongue-in-cheek answer, which does have some honesty behind it, is, you know, some of the right friends, some of the wrong friends. <laughs> uh, in this life, we're actually, we're very fortunate when we grow up with people around us who question the norm, question the, well, you're not supposed to go there, so that means you don't go there. Well, some people were the ones who did look behind a curtain or go around a roped-off barrier and say, I want to see what's down that hallway. And those of you who did that with just enough curiosity to maybe get a finger wagging once or twice, but never get a pair of silver bracelets, you, you grow up with this emboldened sense of curiosity that hasn't been squashed out of you. And that's ultimately how I kind of grew up. I grew up exploring places in that sort of innocent suburban way, but that morphs into, well, okay, now you're in college. Well, I wonder what's on the top floor of the building. There's no dorms <laughs> up there. And then, then you get to an, uh, you know, a, an apartment building and you say, well, the stairway leads all the way up to the sixth floor, but there's another door. Maybe that's the roof. And it, grow it grows from there. But most of us eventually either get old and beaten by the system and say, all right, I don't want to risk my 401k and an arrest record and have to stop. I went the other direction and got fortunately uh, into a career that allows me to keep doing that with reckless abandon. Well, not reckless <laughs> abandon, but with uh, enthusiasm and aplomb. So you're you're working with the man as opposed to against the man, and still In getting and still getting your jollies opening up locks and breaking into places, which I love. If you have to come, I, I recommend my listeners to check him out on YouTube, particularly because there's some great YouTube videos where it's embarrassing how insecure we are. In today's it world, it is. It is simultaneously embarrassing and uh, heartening to me. The world works on this sort of facade of mutual agreement where people just sort of are agreeing that's your space and this is my space. Knowing how uh, trivial many of the locks and locking systems are that we use can be scary, but it also there's this small, small silver lining where you say, huh. I guess that does mean most most people are pretty nice to one another because that's all that's keeping them out is the representation of someone else's property. And a lot of people respect that. It's an interesting conundrum in that for the casual criminal, a simple little lock may be enough to deter. But clearly for a professional, as you've shown on so many of the videos and conferences that you go to, it's nothing. It's actually nothing you can get right in. Yeah. So it, it is a challenge. I, I have to go back to one thing you said, and that is I was thinking about my high school years. And I remember I always had this key that went into the light in the 
men's room that allowed you to yeah. turn on the light. And somehow I got hold of it and I can't remember how, but I love that. Just the ability to have some control when you'd mm-hmm. walk into a room and you could turn the light on or you could turn it off and nobody was the wiser. So that's part of that thrill of the chase, I think, that you get. Yeah. That little forked Y looking shape. I remember yes, it. Yes, exactly. Absolutely. I still have one. Okay. I'm not using it illegally, but I still have it. The other thing that I remember from high school is that I learned for master locks with the key, if I filed down all of the, the nubs except the first one, I could get into most master locks. I don't know if that's still the case because that was many years ago, but that's yeah, what I learned sort of you, you almost made a ringing or jiggling type tool that I am certain would still work on many sort of hardware store grade products. Yeah, and they're uh, out there. That's <laughs> yeah, that, something that I really I want people to consider, and it really helps to make clear in the world what certain locks are. Many people are familiar with either in their bathrooms or in some hotel environments, but we would nowadays, the term was privacy lock. We would call it a privacy lock, a little, a tiny thumb turn, but it's trivial on the outside of the door to get past it. It's meant to cause someone who reaches for the handle to open the go, oh, Oh, pause for a second. Oh, someone must be in there. And then they have to, if they really need to, get a dime or a little key, a little little nub of something. Okay, pop it open. But it's that moment of pause. It communicates. And in fact, the, the original versions of these had tiny thumb turns on both sides. They were called communication locks by Schlage back in the day. It's meant to communicate privacy and personal space without enforcing it in a robust manner. And many of the locks that we see on the cheap, cheap sort of dollar store shelves or the low end in the hardware store really are communication locks. They are, they are symbolic locks is the term I like to use. The unfortunate consequence is that the keys look intricate. Oh, look at all these little bits on the key. That must be a real lock, a security product. And many times it's not. Uh, we show people that the sort of filing cabinets and a lot of things around your offices, these are beyond trivial, as many of your listeners, I'm sure, are aware with, you know, the hairpin sort of type attacks, trivial to open, but they are meant to communicate, hey, this isn't your space. And the enforcement mechanism is not the lock itself. It's if someone walks into the room and the, you know, the circuit breaker panel is hanging open and there's a bunch of teenagers that are suddenly very interested in their shoes and a school administrator says, okay, who opened this? Well, the fact that it's not just a knob or, a you know, someone didn't just bump it. No, you, you did that. You know you did that. And you knew you weren't supposed to. That's the, the role the lock is serving. And that's fine if we understand that role. But if you put a lock of that caliber on, I don't know, a storage unit that no one visits for a month or on a motorcycle, a high value item that's not looked after at night, you're using a symbolic lock in a security role. And the industry and the general discourse are not very good at communicating the distinctions between those categories of lock. And that's something that we all try to demystify when we talk about these topics. It's almost a sense of security virtue signaling. Yeah, you really are representing, this is my property. We think about that even with fences. There's there's a whole boring, from government land, any of my listeners out there know me government land, there's this field called SEPTED, where you're, it's, you're designing a property to, dis, to dissuade, dis, dis, discourage crime. And you might talk about a fence. Well, a fence could be three feet high. Anyone can jump over that fence. But you're communicating very clearly, this is the delineation of our property line. And if someone's on the other side of that fence, 
they have some explaining to do. They didn't just, oops, I was just cutting through. No, you jumped over a fence, buddy. You know, that 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 fence is doing a job, even if it's not doing a very robust job. You answered something that I haven't even asked yet, which was your philosophy about sharing secrets of lockpicking and physical penetration into buildings and bypassing what looks like secure barriers. And that is you're sharing information because you want people to know that this is a facade. And Mm -hmm. I don't know whether you get negative feedback from the security industry or the lock industry or the key industry or any of those guys. I know you also work with a lot of different companies and organizations, but it seems to me your message and why I wanted to have you on the show was your message is to be aware of your surroundings and be aware of your property and realize that, in fact, what you think may be secure is not secure mm-hmm. and try to take steps to secure it better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And fortunately, the industry as a whole doesn't tend to be very aggressive and angry with security researchers and communicators such as myself. And there are many colleagues I have in this industry that have similar public statements and voices and, and lessons. Really, it's just the the I don't want to call someone uneducated or ignorant. It's the the type of person who would maybe decry learning martial arts as, oh, what are you teaching criminals to beat people up? And your average person at the dojo would say, that's really not what we're doing here. Uh, again, it's like that fence. If, if I walk around and said, hey, just so you know, it's possible to leap over a three foot fence. Not too many people would think I'm educating criminals. They'd say, yeah, I'm pretty sure criminals figured that one out, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> and I'd say, yes, but some people aren't realizing that it may be possible. So, yeah, anything I'm educating on publicly is usually most people can tell, wow, criminals already know this. I'm glad I know it, too. Uh, every now and then, sure, you get the one person who angrily, right, the kind of person who probably spends too much time on nextdoor.com and looking for shady looking delivery men out there, ring cameras all day long. I get those messages from the neighbors all the time. <laughs> yeah. Those people, have, why are you talking about this? And that's really the voice of people who would choose to willfully remain ignorant, but that's a choice. That, that sure is a choice that some people make, but most, most folk I meet are pleased to learn that a couple of things they're doing could be better. And also that many of the things they're doing are the right things. People want to ultimately be comforted to know Am I spending my time and effort the right way to protect myself, my family, and my community? That's your advocation, but your vocation, as I mentioned earlier, is working with organizations, government agencies, etc., to help them shore up what they perceive as vulnerabilities in their structures and systems. And again, going back to some of the YouTube videos of you, it's alarming and hilarious at the same time because you, you end up in a server room and the guy goes, well... How did you get in here? And they thought they had it all worked out, and but you yeah. get paid to do it. So you're having fun, which is why I enjoy watching them, is you have fun proving the fact that this is not a secure place. It's a serious subject, and you're obviously getting paid to do it, but at the same time, you're having fun with it. Mm-hmm. And every time, you, you know, the goal is to get to get caught or to have a good story at the end of it, because it's all about teaching the property owner or the, the property tenant to be stronger and better. To return to our martial arts analogy, it's, you know, landing a good punch or a kick might be satisfying in the moment, but the purpose is so that the next time it's harder to. You want to see that person block, dodge, slip around, and you want it to be harder to hit them if they spar with you again in future. Did you ever come up against a client's property or structure that 
I don't want to use the word defeated you because you'd be happy if it defeated you really because it's secure. But did you ever come up against something like that where you just couldn't get in? Oh, yeah. Just astonished us, we'll say. Astonished us. Um, because you yes, have you have the, quite the team yeah. and, and everybody's a specialist, but they also – you have cross-training. So mm-hmm. I've seen it where one guy will do one thing, is assigned to one thing, one guy's another one, another's another one. But if you have to, you can also do – one does A, one does B, one does C. But if you need to, C could do A's work and A could do C's mm-hmm. work. We do absolutely try to learn all different disciplines, and uh, we have some specialists, but everyone can do a lot of jobs. And that's good because, as you say, on certain environments, uh, think this isn't working, so you try that, and you eventually find a way in. But the best, and I will definitely say my best and favorite job was for an agribusiness, a food production business, which, of course, we would want to be taking having things taken seriously. And, boy, they were they were just on us every which way when we were on that property. We could not move around buildings without literally one person. This is, it was amazing. It was a Sunday afternoon when we were on their premises one time and a, an employee wasn't even at work. He was driving through town and he saw us walking through a parking lot. He actually stopped his truck, turned around, K turned, came, pulled into the parking lot and found what building we went into. And tracked us down. He said, hey, I saw you guys walk through the parking lot. Uh, what are you doing here today? And, you know, it just we said, well, no, with the uh, the Wyoming branch sent us out here. That's why we're in Kansas right now. We're, we're going between different offices. We're doing a study. And he said, no, you're not. No, I know the guys at the Wyoming branch. They would have told me. And so ultimately, it really comes down to the culture of security. This company, this this person worked at the company for years, as did many of the employees, and it wasn't just punch a clock, not care about a job to them. The, the company was very treated them very well. Management paid them very well. And they felt a real buy-in, an emotional buy-in to doing their job properly. That's I, why they did that. And I assume they were not paranoid, just cautious. They saw something mm-hmm. and they said, I'm going to check this out. Yeah. And, and I assume when you and the team go in, you have a cover story ready. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But he we didn't had, buy this one, though. In this no, case. <laughs> he did not at all. We were here to do this job. We had these credentials. We had names of people. And he said, nope, I don't think that person would have sent you here. I'm going to check that. I'm going to call that person right now. I can use the directory, which is what we want to see. Yeah, no, exactly. And and so you do encounter companies and organizations that actually know how to be secure. It's rare, but we encounter it yeah. and we applaud them for it. Do you find that with clients that you work with and when you do an after action report. What I mean by after action, when you do an after penetration report, that might be a better way to say it. When you do an after penetration report, do you do another follow-up to see, in fact, that they've accepted and adopted the recommendations that you've made? Sometimes. Every client has different needs and every client has different budget. So some of them will absolutely have us come back for additional inspections and to sort of validate whether they've implemented changes correctly, changes that they're recommending based on what we found. Other times, clients are one and done and they say, boy, that was really scary. We're going to take we're going to take some time to think about what we've learned. <laughs> and we hear we're from five, five years later. Or something like that. How do they normally, how do clients find you? Because it's not exactly, you're not on billboards. You're not on 
you know, network television, and I'm looking at your black cat's tail, which is very funny. Indeed. <laughs> we're, we're on Zoom, so if you, you won't hear the cat. Well, you may hear the cat. You won't see the cat, but I just thought it was funny because all of a sudden this tail gets wagging mm-hmm. around. It's my moving mustache disguise. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> well, you have a beard. I have a beard. That always works out. But how do, how do they find out about you other than through indirect ways or th- as I did through YouTube? There must be some sort of association or recommendation by one client yeah. to another. A lot of it is word of mouth. That's really, it's either my my public persona online talking and trying to educate them in this space has been I've been out there for a while. I've been giving talks and presentations for for ages now. That's where some folk know us. But also in the training and consultation space, we are, you know, we're just one of the very few people that specialize in this topic. It's been kind of funny on some jobs. We've had clients and in the initial meetings, they say to us, boy, we got to tell you, this has been really hard with the scoping and provisioning for this job before we even got it off the ground. We said, oh man, dude. Was there some internal resistance or anything? I said, no, no, nothing like that. Plenty of buy-in for management, but we have a policy where we have to get multiple quotes. And every other person <laughs> we tried to hire either said they either recommended you or they said that you're the ones who trained them in the first place. <laughs> so it all kept coming back to the core group. Sole source contracting. It's you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's funny. In your line of work, because you're so on top of it all, you have to continue to research new technologies and new approaches. Mm -hmm. Are you pessimistic or optimistic about future technology and how it can actually secure either a physical location or online location? Yeah, I'm uh, at best ambivalent. So the the direction everything, as I'm certain many listeners are aware and have experienced, the direction many things are going is more and more electronic. Instead of carrying physical mechanical keys around, we've moved over the years increasingly to touch cards, to access control cards, RFID and proximity cards and the like. And those electronic physical access control systems or EPACS systems, those can be implemented in a much more robust way. I mean, cloning and cracking of credentials gets a lot harder when they're electronic sometimes. Or it can be implemented in a way where someone says, oh, thank goodness, we put the electronic widget on the wall, wash our hands of it, we're done. And it, it blinds people to, to their weaknesses and their blind spots. They're, they are double-edged swords. And we definitely have team members who are among the top in the world with electronic access controls. In fact, Bobak, uh, one of the main co-owners at the firm, he and another fellow named Christian, uh, nickname is Iceman, they are some of the primary researchers and hackers on the RFID landscape. And all of the new card technologies and credential types that come out, they are among the first people, they and, and uh, their peer group, who say, all right, let's see how they're storing the data on the card. Let's see what algorithms they're using. Let's see what they did wrong. And many times this involves being on industry working groups. And before a new technology comes out and before a credential type is actually put into the retail channel, they're talking to engineers at HID and at NXP Semiconductor and saying, yep, yep, well, you might want to double check whether that's being implemented this way or not this way. Go back to the drawing board on that. And it's great to see. It's great to see a product when it finally gets released into the retail space saying, huh, Hey, they actually did it right. Somebody listen to you guys. <laughs> Do you ever find you recommend to a client because of the vulnerability of some of these high-tech instruments 
that to go the other way and go low tech? So in the government space for a long time, you know, governments didn't allow electron like computers for writing up your notes for a long time in the intelligence community. They were still just using typewriters because they didn't trust the electronics. That is no longer the case. I mean, they do have offline computers and they have SCIFs, you know, specialized containment facilities for information. But we don't tend to see that with clients, except on rare cases where you might say, all right, this, that, this asset or that asset, put it in a mechanical safe, an actual mechanical combination safe, no electronics, no keypads, no cards. That is something that increases friction. So it increases the, the hassle of accessing that asset. And for that reason, it's, it's only in rare cases that very specialized things, even the idea of your data being offline, not connected to backup. That's a scary thing for a lot of companies today, but there are some very special cases where encryption keys and other high end passwords, a lot of, yeah, I'm not a real Bitcoin person, right? But a lot of this cryptocurrency, if somebody has their offline wallet, we tell them like put it in a physical form and put it in a mechanical safe. And then you put all your electronics around that. But having some layer where no one can access it digitally is, is valid. I mean, I'm a government safe technician. And still to this day, all of our classified documents, they're behind electromechanical locks. But to this day, weapons lockers are still mechanical locks only. Yeah. The S&G 2937 dial on all those armory locks that I have to service on military bases when people screw something up. <laughs> One of the things you point out in a lot of your videos is the myth of a secure community or what I would call a uh, HOA community that has a gate and has yeah. and has the keypads and you, you key in your code and it gets you in. And mm -hmm. without getting into too much detail, basically you buy a key online and you can open up the panel and open it up that way. You don't have to worry about a code. Yeah. And, and again, that's under the concept of your philosophy, which is letting people know what is vulnerable and what needs to be remedied if possible. Mm -hmm. And where layers are needed, that one element should never be thought of as the only layer in your security. Because again, like that's the definitive example of a high friction environment. If, if the vehicle gate is a slow, arduous process and cars are getting stuck and all the residents are complaining, complaining, whoever sold them that solution is never going to sell another one of them. So all of those vehicle gate solutions and gated community solutions, sort of lobby, they're called telephony intercom systems. All of those are meant to be as turnkey as possible, as friction-free as possible. And in many, many instances, that means as security thin as possible, unfortunately. You're on the road a lot because you go to a lot of meetings and conventions, and there are also videos of you addressing a lot of these conventions. Well, one of the things that, that you address, and I was going to ask you about this as well, just for yourself, mm -hmm. is that the security of traveling. Mm -hmm. When you go into your own hotel room, you just don't go in and that's it. You assume you're safe. You actually take a lot of steps or some steps to secure mm -hmm. that door. And you show on a couple of your videos that people think you can only get in through breaking through the side where the lock is. But no, you can go above and you can go below. And the yeah. secret is that vulnerability of the door jam that where the lock goes in. I may not have the right terminology, but I think I'm close. But mm -hmm. when you're... When you're traveling, do you feel secure with the steps that you take? 
I do. And it's, it's amazing. I love that you, the way you phrased it, do I feel secure? So a friend of mine and a friend of my wife who's also in the same industry, his name is Bruce Schneier, very famous security author and practitioner. He talks about the quirk of the English language, how the verb to be secure can mean either a practical definition of I am in a bunker behind a steel door. I, I am being secure. I, that person is I'm secure. Or it can be a feeling, a sensation, a mentality of I feel secure. Well, if, if Joe says, I am Joe and I am secure, does Joe mean Joe is practically actually secure or do they just feel safe and sound? So I take steps that I hope are practically meaningfully increasing my physical security and in doing so making me feel very secure in my surroundings so I can get a good night's sleep. Uh, my favorite thing of all, it's, you've, you've obviously seen, and maybe some of the other listeners have seen me talk about the, you know, under door attacks and other things that hotels themselves are aware of. They are aware of these tools. They use them to enter rooms if they need to bypass the locks, or they're aware of them in terms of risks of, Hey, if there's a robbery reported, I wonder if it was an under door attack. I love that a retired couple made a small strap. It's a nylon strap with Velcro. And it's just called the soup. I don't sell this. I'm not relating to this. I'm not part of their company. I just love good design. It's a little strap that's called the super grip strap. The little, it just wraps around the internal handle. And the idea is you can kind of wedge your thumb turn. If your hotel room, which many are now, is equipped with a thumb turn, which throws the deadbolt. People just, most people say, oh, I turned the thumb turn and I walked away. Well, that really doesn't do anything. If you, if you doubt me, the next time you're in a hotel, go ahead and turn that thumb turn but then press down hard on the door handle. It will automatically unlock the deadbolt and allow you one, one motion of action egress. This is for fire code, NFPA and ADA code. But if you jam that thumb turn with this Velcro strap, no amount of pressing and pulling and reefing on that door handle. One of my viewers actually loved the idea, bought one, shot a video from a, he sent me a video just uh, last week of his three-year-old daughter in the hotel room hanging, just grabbing and hanging on the door handle. And it wasn't, you know, unlocking, it wasn't turning because this Velcro strap was just keeping the thumb turn wedged. And he says, so I guess that's my endorsement for you. I said, great, I'm glad it works. <laughs> well, we're almost done, but I have to ask your one recommendation for the typical person, either at home or traveling, that they could do to help them, as you say, feel secure. Either that, yeah, either that, that little, little Velcro strap or accept that monitoring is really where we're going. If you live at home, you can always turn your camera. If you get a camera, you can turn it off for privacy, but being able to look in on your property when you're away, of course, everyone be mindful. You are giving a lot of data to either Amazon or Google or you name it. That's that's own, that's own kettle of fish. That's why if I'm home, those cameras are hard off. But when we're away, we appreciate being able to see what's going on because no one single lock or one single wall or door is your security. It has to exist in layers and being able to respond to threats and be aware of reconstructing them if something happened is important. So you're talking about internal cameras, not the external cameras looking out at the property. It's internal cameras looking inside the house. Oh, we've got both. Right. We've got but plenty but of in both. terms of what you were referring to where you turn the cameras off, that's the internal cameras. 
Yeah, we turn our internal ones off okay. when we're at home. And not just relying on the, oh, it'll automatically go off if your phone's near it. No, the power gets switched off from a hard switch when we're home. Because I don't I don't trust Google and any of those companies any more than any of you should. <laughs> well, that's a great way to leave it. And for more information, too, they can always go on YouTube. It's a wealth of information. And people really should just for basic awareness. So we'll leave it at that. My guest has been Deviant Olaf. And for everything about Deviant, as well as the core group and Red Team Alliance, go to deviating.net and you can follow him on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and GitHub, all at Deviant Olaf. Deve, thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me. This has been great. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.